Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Riser. I'm Ted Wyman. I'm joined, as always, by Greg Strong. I'm in Winnipeg. He's in Toronto. And Greg, you know, it comes to mind to me pretty quickly that people in Toronto, the sports fans, are probably having a lot of fun right now. The center of the universe. How is the sports climate there right now, my friend? Ted, Leaf Nation's very upset. At the same time, I think there's some, uh, well, Interesting developments I'm sure we'll touch on with the Toronto Raptors. A big day for them and what's been a big few weeks as that franchise makes some significant changes. And of course, the boys of summer, less than a month until pitchers and catchers report in Dunedin, Florida for Blue Jays spring training. So an interesting time in Toronto. Impressive positive spin you put on that. I, I was expecting it to be a bit more doom and gloomy, but uh, good to see. Not too doom and gloomy in Winnipeg. The Winnipeg Jets are tied for first place overall with Vancouver. So there's a lot of sports excitement in this town. And um, obviously in Vancouver as well. And Edmonton, where they've won 11 games in a row. We're going to touch on all this as we go along on the riser this week. But uh, it's pretty good time for a lot of sport Canadian sports fans. And that's what we like to talk about here. And uh, Greg, also, um, it's been... Uh, a fantastic year for many of our sports leagues in this country, including the Canadian Football League, which had an excellent season. And the Grey Cup was a, a big success in Hamilton. And one of the things that happened at that Grey Cup was that our friend Vicki Hall was uh, inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in the media wing. She became the very first women woman to be uh, inducted, given that honor. And it's uh, a very impressive one and very deserving for a great career. And I'm happy to say that we have Vicky with us today as our special guest. Hello. Hello, Vicky. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, Vicky. And uh, congratulations on the honor of being inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in the media wing. The very first women, woman to uh, desert, to earn that honor. And I was fortunately at the uh, Football Reporters of Canada breakfast where you made a fantastic speech. It was over... Uh, a recording um, over a Zoom, but it was moving. It moved the whole room. It moved me. It was just such a, a, a fantastic way of capturing what it all meant to you. And uh, I think it meant a lot to the people in the, in attendance. So maybe you could share with us a little bit of uh, the feelings that you got when you were told that you would be going into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Well, uh, I don't think I really thought it was real, Ted. I mean, uh, I like to think I'm too young to go into any kind of Hall of Fame. So first, <laughs> but um, it's just a huge honor. And and the first woman thing, I didn't even realize that at first. It took me a little while. And I think someone pointed it out to me um, about a week later. And, and when I realized that, to me, my big thought was to all the women who went before me. Because, like, I never saw myself as a trailblazer or a pioneer because we had... Women like Judy Owen, uh, Joanne Ireland, uh, Sherry Ford, just so many women who came before me. So to me, when I first started, I didn't think that I was I was new. Christy Blatchford, who uh, became one of my mentors as time went on and taught me a lot of things. So I, I didn't think of that. But it, the fact that I am the first woman just is a huge honor. And, and it, to me, I don't think I'm going to be a, alone for very long. I think that there's going to be more women coming in right away. And I, and I just, to me, that's great. I'm so excited that they're going to join me. Well, Vicki, thanks for joining us here on The Riser and congrats on that great honor. I recall talking with you years ago about some of the rather unique characters in football locker rooms. Can you describe what that working environment was like when you were on the football beat? 
Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, I was thinking about this today because when people used to ask me this question, I always was like, well, it's no different for me than any of the guys, you know, I just want to be treated the same. And I always wanted my work to be measured just along with everybody else. I wanted to be a great reporter. I didn't want to be a great female reporter, but I've kind of changed my tune a little bit because I think it's unfair to the people who are coming up now, not to acknowledge that things were more difficult and things are more difficult for them. I mean, uh, I, I started when Don Matthews was the head coach in Edmonton. Uh, he was very old school. The late Don Matthews is very old school. He didn't really talk to me. Uh, there was one offensive lineman on the team that every time he saw me, he would drop his pants. Uh, and, you know, like they all thought it was funny. But if that happened today, like I think that would be seen in a very different, different light. So uh, there were challenges to be sure. There were um, there were people who didn't want me there uh, and, and that was difficult. But I, I remember one time, uh, like I'd been on the beat for CFL beat for, I don't know, about seven weeks and I was in Hamilton and it was really hot, steamy hot. And I was in the visiting dressing room there at Ivor Wynn, which was very small. And this guy was like literally gyrating, uh, no pants on behind me. And during an interview and afterwards I was outside, I was actually just trying to cool off because it was so hot in there. And AJ Gass came up to me. He was a linebacker for Edmonton Football Club at that time. And he came up to me and he said, you know, are you okay? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I, I didn't want to say anything. I always wanted to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm cool. And he's like, if anyone ever bothers you, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me. I want you to tell us. And I said, okay. And from then on, nothing ever happened again in that room like there was always people watching out for me so there were hard times Brian Chu every time uh Montreal came to Edmonton and those were fierce rivalries Brian Chu would see me at the door of the dressing room and walk in with me and help me out so there were lots of people along the way who helped but as I said I think to say that it wasn't hard at times is not fair so now I am more honest about really what it was like Vicki, you've been uh, in the media for a long time, um, involved in journalism in several different capacities, and you were a sports writer for a long time for Post Media, Edmonton Journal. I think you started the Regina Leader Post, if I'm correct. Uh, and and you've, you know, you spend a lot of years um, watching the game evolve. And I mean, your your career stands by itself, and it's an uh, it's it's just so fantastic that you were able to make that mark and be um, recognized in the Canadian Football League. But I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the state of women's sports in general right now. You know, we've talked a, a few times on the on the riser about the Professional Women's Hockey League, how that has risen and uh, and is is off to a very good start, um, despite having a short window to get going. And the WNBA has obviously become a very big. The Women's World Cup was attracting these incredible full houses of uh, for for uh, women's soccer games in Australia last summer. Uh, where do you see the growth? And you know, did you even expect to see this uh, twenty years ago when you started out and it was such a male-dominated industry? Did you think you'd see the day when it would be progressing like this? You know, I, I didn't, but it's kind of interesting near the beginning of my career. I remember I was covering football. I was covering Edmonton and I was at Clark Stadium, which is right by Commonwealth Stadium. And it was the Women's World Under 18 Soccer Championships and uh, one, under 18 or under 20, under 20, I think maybe. And uh, it was being played at Commonwealth Stadium and people thought that no one would show up. 
and I did not get to cover that, but I was sitting in the press box at Clark Stadium and I could hear like the noise coming from Commonwealth. And that was Christine Sinclair's coming out party. Like that's where we saw that generation of soccer players that a lot of people met them for the first time. And there was almost a full crowd there. And it was considered this anomaly, like this insane thing, like a, I think it was Sepp Blatter. Like they were shocked. FIFA was stunned that anyone would come out and watch women's football like that. And I think actually in some ways in Canada, that was the beginning. That was the the beginning. I, I regret not being able to cover it. And I remember Jonesy, uh, Terry Jones from the Edmonton Sun used to rub it in my face all the time that I wasn't there. And we're talking about a, a young women's soccer tournament, but that was the introduction to Christine Sinclair. And now, I mean, like the difference is unbelievable. I mean, when I first started covering it, you never really saw it in the women's, in the sports section at all, women's sports. So to me, I, I think it's amazing. I think there's a long way to go. I think they've shown that the appetite's there. Now we've got to figure out a way to meet that appetite and make it more of a daily thing. I think professional women's hockey league is, is a great start, but I, I would love to see it build and, and for soccer as well. So that girls, when they're growing up now, they don't have to think, Oh, you know, that's not for me. Uh, because when I grew up, I certainly didn't think that there was any place for me in sports, but partially because I'm not a great athlete, but also just, I didn't think that there was any Avenue. So the fact that there is that Avenue there now, and it's not just the Olympics once every four years. I think it's it's outstanding and it's great to see. Vicki, here on the riser, we like to rewind a little bit when we can. Go to yesteryear. And in this case, I'd like to ask you about something that happened 18 years ago at the 2006 Turin Olympics. Now, we were in Pinerolo, Italy together to cover Brad Guju's gold medal victory uh, at those Turin games. And I remember you know, there were several scribes on a, I think it was a subway or a tram heading back to the main media complex. Um, and I remember we're all furiously pecking away at our keyboards, trying to write stories. I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but I do remember a line that you said as we were writing and you said, this story has the, you know, the stories we write have the potential to be framed and posted on the, in the rooms of children across Canada. I really want to make it sing. I want, I was wondering if you could tell us about the approach you use when it came to your storytelling and delivering the best written content possible. Well, you know what's interesting? I wish Bruce Arthur was on this podcast right now because it would be interesting to hear his viewpoint here because uh, two years later, uh, Bruce and I were in Beijing together and it was Bruce's first Olympics. It was my second. I was this wily veteran now. And Bruce was freaking out. He was losing his mind. Uh, like, if you know Bruce, he's got a lot of nervous energy anyways. And he was like kind of bouncing around the room and like freaking out and uh, just kind of. And I went up to him, the older, wiser by maybe a couple years person. And I said to him, Bruce, you're here for a reason. They br brought you here for a reason. Do what you do at home. Just do what you do at home. If you try too hard, you're going to you're going to get right or you're, you're going to strike out. And I actually think in that story that you were talking about, the Gushu story, when he won and he phoned his mom and everything, I actually, if I went back and looked at that frame piece, I think I'd probably want to hide it in the basement because I don't think I did a very good job. So I think I learned that um, if, if you, if you think about the fact that it's going to go on people's walls and it's going to be history, you might do a very poor job and you just need to believe in yourself. Uh, so I, yeah, I, 
that's what I think now looking back at that is that, you know, I'm sure that is framed on people's walls in, uh, in uh, Newfoundland in particular, but I hope it's not my story. Cause I think I, uh, I, I think the fact that I said that to you shows where my mind was and it was in the wrong place that night. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> you know, um, I, I got one more question for you, Vicki. And I was just curious if, uh, you always wanted to be a sports writer. If that was something that you thought of when you were a little kid, or if even when you got into the journalism game, if that was where you wanted to, the, the field you wanted to head into, or if it's just something that came about. Well, when I was uh, little, I was in Calgary and uh, I, um, Jim Poplinski and Bill Clement were members of the Calgary Flames. They had just moved from Atlanta and they came to my school and my family's British, uh, you know, not into hockey at all. And they came to my school and I went and watched uh, Richard Brodeur and the Vancouver Canucks play the New York Islanders in the Stanley Cup final. And I was hooked, completely hooked. So I used to listen to the sports radio broadcast late at night after the Flames games. When I moved to Edmonton, I would listen to the late John Short, who just passed away. And I'd always want to phone. I would want to phone them and tell them what I thought. But I'd be like, well, no one would care what a woman would think or a young girl would think. They, like, and I actually think back then, maybe they wouldn't have cared. I really, I really do. But I, I think I picked up the phone sometimes and I was on hold, but then I would always chicken out. So uh, I always loved sports, but then I became a journalist and then the door opened for me and then it was full circle. So I, like I, to say that I wanted to be a sports journalist, I didn't think that was possible for me. But one day I woke up and I was working with the people who I listened to uh, as a kid. And, and uh, so to me, sometimes if you if you love something, I think that life just presents it to you. You end up where you need to be. Now that's fantastic, Vicki. Uh, I think I can speak for Greg and say we can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you. And thanks so much for sharing all your insight and those great stories. And congratulations again on uh, your induction into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Thanks and I look forward to seeing you both uh, on the road at some point uh, in the next little while. Fantastic. That's Vicki Hall. Thanks very much for joining us, Vicki. Well, what a great conversation that was with Vicki Hall, uh, a friend of ours uh, from the, all the trails that we've been on over the years and in, in the sports business, Greg, uh, you know, just to see someone be able to, earn that trailblazer distinction that, uh, you know, is, is really a great thing um, for her to get inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. It's, it's going to be a floodgate now. I think there'll be quite a lot of women that are getting inducted in the future, but someone had to be first and I can't think of, think of anybody better. Yeah, Vicky, a great selection for that, a great career. And not only covering football, as we discussed, she's covered a lot of big events, a lot of Olympic games, uh, a lot of events in in Alberta, in Canada, all over the place, um, domestic, international, just a great writer. And so uh, really great that she was able to join us today on the right. Yeah, and it's it's so great to hear how people get into the industry and all those kinds of things. It's always, there's so many unexpected stories that come along. So I really enjoy that. But hey, it's time to get into the hot topics of the day in uh, Canadian sports. And uh, I can't think of anything much hotter right now than the way some of these Canadian teams are playing in the NHL. I'll tell you, the Winnipeg Jets and Vancouver Canucks are tied for first place in the NHL at 62 points. Uh, can you think of the last time that happened when two Canadian teams were right there at the top battling for the President's Trophy now that we're past the midway point of the season? And the Edmonton Oilers have won 11 games in a row. I mean, I think two, 
two podcasts ago, we were talking about the Oilers already being on a heater and they're still winning. They've won 11 in a row. It's just a really incredible, uh, considering especially how they started. They went through a coaching change. Chris Knobloch doing a fantastic job there. And, you know, I still don't think the Oilers have the goaltending to be the, the great contenders for the Stanley Cup. They may have to make that move through a trade, but they're they're really doing something special. It's it's a pretty great time for Canadian hockey as long as you're not one of the those Toronto Maple Leaf fans because it's not looking so good for them lately, is it? No, it's not. The uh, the Leaf Nation very upset as as we record. But I'm just north of Toronto and uh, certainly have uh, have an ear on sports radio and some of the local outlets, and uh, they are upset. Four game winless skid. That'll always get people talking, and uh, sure enough, the, the calls are already going out for what to do about head coach Sheldon Keefe. You know, it's funny you mentioned all those strong Western teams. Didn't mention the Calgary Flames, who cannot be ruled out. They're on a bit of a heater themselves. I tell you, Ted, I think the Western Conference playoffs are going to be fantastic, especially if this CanCon holds up and we get those teams in the mix come spring. Yeah, I think yeah. it would be Winnipeg and Edmonton if it were to happen right now. And that would really be something they met in the playoffs a few years ago. Um, and of course have a long, long history of playoff battles. Most of them won by the Oilers. Um, yeah. Like you said, with the Leafs 21, 13 and eight at the time that we're recording, definitely talk of a coaching change because of four straight losses and a lot of blown leads. And I'd say we talked, we wanted to talk a little about who the winners and losers of the NHL season are here. And I'd say, you know, we've, we've already named some of the winners, certainly Vancouver, Winnipeg, Edmonton. I think Connor Bedard being a rookie sensation. I think Sidney Crosby having 26 goals at age 36 is pretty impressive. But when you come to the loser side of things, you know, uh, the, the Leafs aren't out of the picture uh, in terms of the playoffs, but they're battling for their playoff lives right now. And I think a lot of people would have expected better. And they're not the only team in Eastern Canada that's uh, struggling. The Ottawa Senators right near the bottom of the standings. They've been a disappointment this season. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on what some of the highlights and lowlights of this season have been so far? Yeah. I mean, Winnipeg and Vancouver, like, you know, I think it would, would be a safe bet at the start of the season to think, okay, these teams have a, have the potential to have solid campaigns, but being at the top of the overall standings is just next level. So full marks to those teams, definitely winners as far as the midway point of the NHL season go. But of course you want to be a winner at the end and into the playoffs. So we'll see if those teams can hang on and uh, continue to do so well. Edmonton Oilers, I mean, wow. You talk about the roller coaster seasons. This is the definition of it. And they are on a heater of heaters here at the moment. So we'll see if that can continue. And then here in the East, yes. I mean, it's, it's really been disappointing for all three teams. Uh, Montreal, kind of in that formative building up for the future kind of stage. The Ottawa Senators, I mean, they've been mired in the Eastern Conference basement for most of the season. The Toronto Maple Leafs, though, with all that high-powered, highly paid offensive talent just have not delivered. And you can blame injuries. You can blame a lack of depth on the blue line in net. The fact is they're not getting it done. And they're, when I last looked, Ted, in the playoff spot by just one point. So it would really be something if they don't get it together. And they've got this road trip coming up here where they've got a lot of tough teams on the schedule. And then at home and home with your Winnipeg Jets, it's like, pop it off. Yeah, no kidding. And I'll hear some winners for you. Uh, William Nylander lands a huge contract to join 
Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and Morgan Riley with the Leafs as very, very high paid players. And it's going to be awfully tough for them to navigate that salary cap world going forward. So that's another part that makes it very tough. But good on Nylander for having such a great season when he was due a contract. And how about the Jets? 33 games in a row without giving up more than three goals. That's too shy of the modern record held by the Minnesota Wild set in 2014-15. The Jets have now gone 13 games, giving up two goals or less. Connor Hellebuck is clearly being touted as one of the Vezina Trophy winners. And it's interesting, that Minnesota team in 2014-15 played in a season that had really low scoring. I mean, Jamie Benn led the NHL in scoring that year with 87 points. Connor McDavid almost doubled that last year. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty incredible that uh, th what the Jets are doing in an era when there's a lot more scoring. Can't say for sure that they can hold on. I'm in Winnipeg. There's a lot of people worried that they could drop back. But right now, playing fantastic hockey. Rick Bonus is going to the All-Star game as the coach from the Central Division. And, and there's a lot of excitement there. And I'll tell you, uh, among the losers is another guy who has a connection to the Winnipeg Jets. Well, losers in terms of this season. I'm not trying to say anything in particular about this person overall, but Pierre-Luc Dubois, who the Jets got, you know, traded to the LA Kings for three players and a draft pick, nine goals, 19 points in 40 games, and he's minus 10. He's the lowest uh, plus minus on the team for the LA Kings, who are generally a pretty good defensive team, but he really hasn't panned out much for them in the first year of an eight-year contract. And Alex Ovechkin, now, he needs uh, 65 goals to pass Wayne Gretzky for the all-time goal-scoring list, which, hey, that's pretty amazing. Um, if he can pull it off, that would really be incredible. But he's only on a 17-goal pace this season. He had eight goals so far last time I looked. And, you know, at, at that rate, it could take him four years to get to the record. So that is something that's going to be very interesting to watch. Certainly hasn't been uh, the same kind of year for Ovechkin as he gets a little bit older. It's always amazing to me how you have elite athletes who are used to competing at a certain level for so long, so many years, Hall of Fame level athletes. I'm, and in other sports, I'm thinking Allen Iverson, Alex Rodriguez in baseball, and now Alex Ovechkin. And it's amazing how it, it's not like it just stops, but it really slows down quickly when you get into the mid 30s, late 30s in some cases. It's nice players can go into their 40s, but it feels a little bit like Ovechkin is at that point where it's like, mm, maybe the scoring prowess, the numbers, it's just not there anymore. And he can still be a solid NHL player, but the days of 50 goal Alex Ovechkin seasons may be over. Well, we're lucky here on the riser that we have a Canadian press writer in, uh, in uh, Greg Strong, who covers a very wide variety of sports. And one of the things you're pretty knowledgeable about is tennis. So it's the Australian Open right now in Melbourne. And I tell you, that's something I'd really love to go to. It's hot as hell <laughs> down there in Australia right now. But uh, it just looks like such a, a fun, fun tournament, a real bucket list one for me to be able to go to that. But Pretty rough start for the Canadians. And uh, just what are your thoughts on on what's going on with the Canadians in tennis right now? Yeah, it's interesting, the tennis scene in Canada. I mean, for we'll go back to Milos Raonic and Jeannie Bouchard about a decade ago, when they achieved such great heights, I mean, reaching Grand Slam finals, um, you know, for the better part of eight, nine years, we had Canadians who were in the mix 
and going deep regularly in these major tournaments. Uh, of course, Denis Shapovalov, Felix Ojealiasim, both cracked the top 10 at, at one point. And then, of course, on the women's side, we look at Bianca Andreescu, who won the U.S. Open in 2019, and Leila Fernandez, who got to the final at Flushing Meadows herself a couple of years later. It was just an amazing time for, you know, when it comes to Canadians in tennis, it have been decades, you know, since we'd had that kind of representation on that stage. And now it feels like we're in a bit of a valley here. When I last looked at the ATP and WTA Tour rankings, Ted, we had one Canadian, that being Ojeal Yassim, in the top 30, at number 30, on the men's side, and Leila Fernandez, who was in the mid-30s on the women's side. Uh, we have one Canadian left as we record this podcast in the Australian Open main draw, which is in the second round as we speak. It's it's really been a, a drop-off as far as singles results. And injuries, of course, are a factor for many. Bianca's been hamstrung by injuries throughout her career, really. Um, Felix, you know, feel, seemed like he was battling something most of last season and Shapovalov missed about six months with a knee issue. It's just so tough in that sport to stay healthy, but it's really hammered the Canadians over the last season or two. But that being said, Ted, the results on the team level have been remarkable. Davis Cup victory in 2022, first time for Canada. Then this year, the Billie Jean King Cup, Canada wins that for the first time. In that event's history, long history. So fantastic results at the team events, uh, really solid results in the double scene with Gabby Dabrowski of Ottawa, who's been a top 10 player for years and is coming off a U.S. Open title herself. So it's uh, an interesting time when it comes to Canadians in tennis, and we'll see if Felix can go on a bit of a run here down under. So I also want to talk a little bit about curling today. We do that pretty much every time on the riser because we've both been curling reporters over a long span of our career. And uh, it's really interesting that in, in just recent days, Nunavut, it was announced, has withdrawn from the Scottish Tournament of Hearts. That means there's going to be a fourth or a second wildcard team, fourth wildcard team, if you want to look at it a different way. There are going to be four teams that are in there that didn't have to win their provincial championships um, to get through. And, and then also the defending champion, which is Kerry Anderson. Um, and, and a couple of teams, new teams, will make it through the Canadian team ranking system. Nunavut is out, and they've never really been in in my opinion um it's even when they were there and and competed it wasn't necessarily people who live in Nunavut who were doing the competing um and and they rarely had much success you and I both know that our friend Laurie Eddy skipped them for a while and they they did win some games um Laurie's from Ontario um and she did have women from Nunavut on her team as well but at some point this has just been impossible for them to pull off and now they're not in the Scotties anymore. Um, so is it time, Greg, to rethink that part of the inclusion in in the Scotties and Briar? These are great big curling events in Canada. Do we need to make sure we have that provincial and territorial representative representation all across the board at this moment? It's an interesting one, and it's certainly on the to-do list for new Curling Canada CEO Nolan Thiessen, I'm sure. That's something that he's going to have to examine as we go forward here, because, yes, it's great that we have representation from all provinces, all provincial uh, associations and territories. But it does. I mean, with respect to the none of the teams, I mean, I covered the Briar last year when Jake Higgs won 
none of its first game. That's the 2023 Briar. And that territory had been in the Briar for, I believe, six, seven years at that point without a victory. 0-42, 0-44, something like that. Higgs finally breaks the streak. Uh, on the women's side, you know, they've had a few more victories. Laurie, of course, skipped them to a, a few wins in her run as skip. But, I mean, it's just not a great situation to have a team that has to come into these national championships, play the elite of the elite, and get skunked frequently. It's just, it's not a great feeling. It's not healthy, in my opinion, to have teams go out and lose 15 to 1, 16 to nothing. It's just not a great vibe. So how do you fix it? Well, that's a tough one. And it seems like we have to go every two or three years and look at a new format for the Briar, for the Scotties. And maybe we have to do that again here to get to get things uh, get things rolling. It's, it's unfortunate because in none of it, they only have one active curling club in the entire territory. And that curling club, I wrote a little bit about this when they announced their withdrawal, that curling club is not functioning as of earlier this month. They've had rented it out to a, a movie production studio or something. So the, even if they had named a team, they wouldn't be able to practice or train in that territory. It's a really unfortunate situation because I'm sure that a lot of the young curlers, that a lot of the young athletes, you know, were really excited to see the Nunavut team get its first Briar win last year and to see the Scotties victories over the years as limited as they are. That's, that's certainly a good thing. Um, but it's a real problem when you have such limited resources and one curling club. All right. Well, Greg, we've already talked about one downtrodden Toronto team. Well, not really downtrodden. The Leafs aren't. The Leafs are in a playoff position, so let's not call them that. But they certainly are having some troubles lately. So how about another? Uh, the Toronto Raptors. It's a long time ago that they won the championship, the NBA championship in 2019. And things have changed an awful lot. And so much so that after a trade that happened today on the day that we're recording, there's now just one player left from the organization at that time. Of course, uh, the Toronto Raptors right now sitting at 15 and 25, barely in the mix for a play-in spot. And now they've traded Pascal Siakam. They recently traded OG Ananobi. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a revamp entirely, isn't it right now, Greg? I'd go even stronger. It's a full-on rebuild here. I mean, it's, it's a situation where Masayu Jiri, I think, finally has the opportunity to really gut things and build around Scotty Barnes, their young star player. They've got RJ Barrett in now. They've got Emmanuel Quickly in now after that New York trade. And now today with the reports that Pascal Siakam is on his way to Indiana for, you know, three first round draft picks, uh, I believe a second rounder in that trade. They've restocked the draft cupboard, if you will, even though those first round picks aren't that hot. I mean, they're going to be in the twenties likely. Um, it's still, you know, if you're at a poker table, you want to have some chips and now they've got them. Right. So it's, uh, I think something that Ujiri has waited. I mean, since he's been on the job, Toronto's been pretty good. In fact, I really have to think the last time the Raptors rebuilt, they've had so many strong teams for so many years, whether that be Chris Bosch, DeMar DeRozan at the forefront, Kyle Lowry. And then of course that impressive 2019 run to the title with Kawhi Leonard being their big gun. It's uh, 
I think, an exciting time. It's going to be a couple of years, I think, before the Raptors can get back into the playoff mix. But I think this time, you know, it was, it was overdue. And now they're here. And Ujiri's, uh, he may have some more moves up his sleeve. We'll have to see. Well, it sounds like a positive when you put it that way. That's for sure. And it really is. If you finally have recognized that the time is to blow it up and and rebuild and stock up on draft picks and bring in younger players, then you're on the right track, in my opinion. I mean, it might take longer than people want to see, but it's certainly something that is at least moving forward because if you're not moving forward, you're moving the other way and nobody wants to see that. I did want to transition quickly to one of our favorite segments on the show, which is the all-timers, where we tell some stories from our, how many decades is it in the business? Three? It's been a while. It's been a long time. You go first this time. And and I do, I do love it. I'm, you know, I love telling these stories uh, because, you know, well, for one thing, I spend a little time thinking about them because you want to come up with something that actually was memorable and meaningful. Did you say I should go first? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay, well, I've been talking for a long time. I hope you don't mind that. Uh, this is a funny one. Uh, you know, so when I was just starting out covering the NHL in 2012, now the, the Winnipeg Jets didn't enter the NHL until uh, the 2011-12 season. So it was the first time I had a chance to go. And, uh, and I went down uh, to cover the Jets in Florida. And uh, as, as it happens, there was a golf tournament going on nearby it was the pga honda classic which is a blast it's in west palm beach or palm beach gardens florida and it's uh it's a real fun event a lot like the uh one in phoenix um which is you know all fan based and and it's a real good time and i was new to it you know i'd never covered a pga event before so i got a chance to go and do it and uh and i really really enjoyed it but i happened to just be out walking the course and you've got a nice badge and you're, you can pretty much go wherever you want. But I didn't realize you, you were allowed to go inside the ropes when you were a media member. And somebody came along and said, what are you doing out here? Go walk inside the ropes. So sure enough, I, I did. So I went under the ropes and I walked in and I, I realized I'm on the course with uh, Ernie Els and, uh, and Rory McIlroy. And there was one other player in the group and I hate to say it, I can't remember who it was. Um, but I followed them for a couple of holes. And Rory McIlroy was the defending champion at the event. His name was on every single poster in town. Uh, he lives in West Palm Beach, or he did at the time. And he's kind of the hometown guy in the tournament. And he was a lot of expectations on him. And I was walking in the group, and he was having a terrible round. I mean, he was playing awful. He had a bad first round. This was the second round. And we were on about the eighth hole and it didn't look good for Rory to make the cut. And he took a shot and it went into a bunker and he pretty much picked up his clubs and walked towards a, a, a pathway in the woods that went straight to uh, straight to a parking lot. And there was a couple of Irish reporters following along and I happened to follow them because if they're going to go and follow him, I may as well follow him too. And followed him out to the parking lot, and he was there, and he just said, oh, guys, I, I just don't have it today. I, I'm, I'm not feeling great. And, uh, and he got in his car, and he took off. And so I was like, does this happen all the time? I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, at the time, there was, no, there was no internet out on the course. 
and I was a, a Canadian reporter, so I didn't actually have the uh, I didn't have the um, internet on my phone at that moment. So I had to go back to the clubhouse, and I ran there, and the Irish guys were ran ran there too. I'm going to try to tell this story uh, in some sort of fashion on Twitter, or maybe send in a story to my desk. And by the time I got there, there was a press release from the PGA saying that Rory McIlroy had retired with a toothache. And it was that fast and it was, uh, and it was done so well. But it was interesting because the guys in his group did not know anything about a toothache. And, and for a while, Ernie Els and the other player were kind of mad that this had happened. But then when they heard that there had been a reason, they kind of calmed down. Love it. Love it. For mine, Ted, I'm going to rewind over two decades to when I was with Broadcast News, which is the radio television arm of the Canadian press. Uh, the two divisions uh, merged or integrated in the mid 2000s sometime. But in 2001, 02-ish, I was working the overnight desk, I believe, on the Broadcast News side. And we had a pro squash association event in Toronto once a year featuring 18 of the top 20 players in the world, including at the time, world number one, Jonathan Power, who's a Toronto guy who also lived in Montreal. So I would go down before my overnight shift started at 11 p.m. and I had a media pass and I would write up a little, what we called a broadcast separate, little 150 word item that would move on the broadcast wire. So I went down and I, you know, do my thing and I go back to the office, which was a couple blocks up the road. And I opened my email, there were no Blackberries or uh, iPhones at this time, of course, 2001-ish. And uh, I opened the email and it's a note from the sports editor saying, hey, Greg, we're here, you're gonna be doing a little broadcast set. Do you mind uh, getting four or 500 words together and we'll put that a little print item on it too. I'm like, oh my God, I, I didn't get any quotes. I didn't talk to everyone. So I, anyway, I grabbed my recording device and jog back, to, well, sprint back down Young Street, hoping that I will get there in time to talk to some athletes. Because as you know, you need to get the quotes. You need to talk to the newsmakers. I go into BCE place and coming up the, the escalator is Jonathan Power and Peter Nickel, one and two in the world at the time. And I, I knew John a little bit. I'm like, John, uh, I don't even want, this is like an hour and a half after his match. He's stretched, blah, blah, blah. I explained the situation. He was kind and gracious enough to give me four or five minutes, talked about the match. Then I talked to Peter Nichol, same thing. Went back to the office, banged out 400 words, and we were all set. But I always, it was one of my first assignments, uh, and Jonathan Power and Peter Nichol delivered for me on that night. Amazing. I would have pulled a hamstring for sure if uh, that had been me doing that. That sprint down Young Street, but uh, good to see that you were able to pull that off, and it showed that you know maybe some reporters are in pretty good shape, right? Well, it was only about 100 meters, so oh, okay. You made it sound like further. Okay, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Greg, another fantastic time hanging out here with you on the riser. We've had Vicky Hall here with us, which was an absolute treat. I want to give special thanks to our producer Alex Antoniatis the Toronto Metropolitan University Podcast Lab, our social media intern, Ryan McMahon, our musicians, the Tuesday Night Jam out of Winnipeg. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and please hit that subscribe button when you listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us again this week on The Riser. We'll talk to you again soon.